Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, while you're going ahead and stay standing, 1 Timothy <laughs> chapter 1, verse 15, as we stand to honor the reading of God's Word. That's where we'll be this morning. This is Paul writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. This is what he says. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I'll read it one more time. The saying is trustworthy and des- deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Let's pray. Father, would you transform us by your gospel this morning? Pray that you would be glorified. Pray these things in your precious son's name. Amen. You can be seated. In the late 18 or 1700s, early 1800s, there was a great Baptist theologian and a great Baptist pastor named Andrew Fuller. Andrew Fuller served in London, and he served as head of the London Missionary Society. And this was one of the first Baptist mission-sending organizations in the history of the world. And he wrote a book, and if you've ever seen the titles of books in the late 1700s, they're enormously long, but this is the short version. Short version is the gospel worthy of all acceptation. The gospel worthy of all acceptation. That the gospel itself is worthy and it is beautiful enough and it is glorious enough for us as the created beings of God Himself to accept. That we should indeed accept it. And his really his driving force in writing this. This treatise, if you will, on the gospel worthy of all acceptation is that he was trying to build within the people of God in London at that time a sense and urgency of mission. That even though God is sovereign over salvation and even though he's sovereign over all things, that does not rid us of our responsibility to take the gospel to the ends of the earth because it is through the hearing of the gospel that people are saved and are brought to Christ himself. The gospel worthy of all acceptation. If you ever come across it, please read it. It is absolutely phenomenal, even if it's written in an old language that is hard for us to read, an old English language. And the gospel is really what we're going to be talking about even this week. Last week, as we started our series on the foundations of the church, we talked about expository preaching, expositional preaching, and why it is the foundation of the church. And at first, a lot of people probably would have been saying, wait, shouldn't the gospel be the foundation, the first cornerstone of the church? And I argued, I agree with you, but we got to start even before the gospel. Because the Bible itself is God preaching to us and revealing himself to us. In creation, he spoke, he preached and created And so that's kind of where we started. And as we continue out through the series over the next five to six weeks, each of these topics that we're laying this foundation of the church is going to be building on the previous one. So expositional preaching is the cornerstone. What is it that we are supposed to exposit? What is it that we are supposed to expose to the people? How is it that we are supposed to preach expositionally? Well, we're supposed to preach what we're talking about today. We're supposed to preach the gospel 
That's what we're supposed to preach. So as we look at 1 Timothy here, what Paul is saying to his protege in the faith, saying to Timothy, is that this gospel is worthy to be accepted. That this gospel is everything that, that we need for life and for godliness and for salvation, young Timothy. And he's commissioning Timothy even to pastor his own church at a young age. And it was supposed to be founded on the gospel. So I want to walk us through this morning the gospel in two different ways. I want to think about the gospel in light of the story, the redemptive narrative of the Bible. And then I want to look at the gospel as a message. Gospel in light of the redemptive narrative of the Bible, and then the gospel as a message. So think about the redemptive narrative of the Bible. In my Sunday school class that I teach at First Baptist Covington, this is what we literally have built our entire class on, is that these pillars, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, the overarching storyline of the Bible, we have to have that framework in our heads so that we can hang different things throughout it. So that when we, do, when we read the Bible, we can understand it more clearly because we have categories through which to filter things. But the gospel, while it is a message, it has, it has been from the beginning. Even in Genesis, walking from Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is wove, woven throughout the entirety of the Bible. So we're going to walk through these, these pillars of redemption, if you will, these pillars of biblical theology and look at it in light of the gospel. So first you have creation. Creation, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where God creates absolutely everything by his own power and just speaking. And in his creating, he has ordered everything according to his design. And it was absolutely perfect. Every part about his design was perfect. You go through the days of the week as he is creating by his own will, this creation ex nihilo, which means out of nothing God creates. He's building it and it's making perfect sense. His design is absolutely perfect. And the pinnacle of this creation is humanity. Adam and Eve, as he creates them, they're the absolute pinnacle of everything that has been created. They are to represent God on earth. They are to be his vice regents. They are to bear his image to the ends of the earth. That is ultimately their mission. We see that in Genesis 1, 27 through 28. And this perfect design becomes broken. It becomes broken. Genesis 3 with the fall. They sin is what the Bible says. The serpent comes early in Genesis 3. And he starts causing Eve primarily to question everything. This God that has created everything and has told you not to do this, are you sure that's what God truly meant? Did God really say that? And so Eve began to really question what the Lord had, had commanded her and her husband Adam to do and caused her out of her own willful, will she willfully disobeyed. And so did Adam. He was passive in the entire thing. And so sin entered the world. Now, how, how do you, the question may come, how do you explain sin? Just in general, how do you explain sin? And we're going to get to that later in the sermon. Yet all of us would agree that there is something wrong with this world, regardless of your worldview. 
Regardless of if you're here this morning and you really may not be a Christian or if you're Islamic or Hindu or whatever your religion may be, one thing that we can all agree on is that the world is broken in some sense. It doesn't, it doesn't take anybody long to figure that out once they start growing up. There's a brokenness that is here on this earth that we all long for to be fixed. You see it even on the TVs nowadays and you, you open the, the dresser for the cabinet and the, inside the cabinet says the TV and you flip it on and news is just all about what's going wrong in the world. All of the brokenness that is, that is here in the world that's continued to be sustained. Whether it's poverty, hunger, relational strife with one another, relational strife between races even. The social justice that we see on the TV where, where there is just complete brokenness in the system itself with cops and other people really warring against one another and riots going on. You see complete and utter brokenness. Where does it come from? Ultimately, it comes from sin. That's where it comes from. In Genesis 3, you really have what happens with the fall of Adam and Eve, you have God pronounce a series of curses against them. And you see brokenness in these curses. You see that there's going to be relational strife between man and woman. You see that there's going to be relational strife between nature and humanity. And you see that, that the relationship from humanity to God and God's relationship with humanity is completely and utterly broken. And we know that it's completely broken, not destroyed, but completely broken because the Lord cast them out of his perfect garden and he guards it for them never to enter again. So where's the, where's the hope in all of this? Where's the hope? Well, the hope is actually in Genesis 3.15. This proto-euangelion, this first gospel is preached in Genesis 3.15 where the Lord promises that there will be a redeemer. There will be one that comes and crushes the head of the serpent. There will be one that brings all of this brokenness together again and renews all things. There will be one to do this. But what we see from Genesis through the people of God continuing on is that this brokenness persists. The brokenness continues to persist. So let's just think about the brokenness in light of God's people, Israel. Let's think of the brokenness, even with God's covenant people, Israel. He chooses Abraham. He makes a nation out of Abraham. He says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I'm going to make your, your nation great so that you can glorify me and make my name great among all of the nations. And what do you see as, as the people of Abraham begin to grow? You see the sons of Abraham first sin over and over and over again. And you see the people continue to grow and they end up in Egypt in slavery. God miraculously redeems them from the bondage of Pharaoh in Egypt. Out of his great power, leads them to a promised land. And what do you have in the interim period between their rescue and then them entering the promised land? Nothing but disobedience. The Lord rescues them, his own people. He feeds them, he protects them, he fights for them, he clothes them, and they turn away time and time and time again. Why? Why do they do that? It's because of sin. That's why. 
They wanted other things here, creation, more than they wanted the creator. Romans 1 tells us that. They wanted other things. Their sin was coming forth from them. And even think of the, na- the makeup of the people of Israel. You have priests. Why were priests given? Priests were given to make sacrifices on behalf of the people of Israel to atone for their sins against a holy God. That's what, they were, that's what their function was. The Levites were made to do this. What happened to the Levites? Well, they, they ended up kind of becoming corrupt and they didn't do their jobs. What do you have after this time period? Well, you have the judges that kind of enter. And the judges were somewhat a mixture between prophet and ruler. And you have the, the judges like Gibeon and you have Samson and you have Othniel and all of these awesome judges that do amazing things, yet the people of Israel continue to sin. And we see this popular refrain strewn throughout the entire book of Judges and the people did what was right in their own eyes. They no longer had a God that they were looking to. Their truth came from within. It it was not received from the Lord. And that's where they chased. After the things of this world, they started making themselves a lot like the nations around them. You had these judges and then you had kings. Well, the judges didn't work. Give us a king is what they said in 1 Samuel. You have Samuel, this judge prophet who anoints a king Why? Because the people of God asked for a king. The Lord gave it to them. But why did they ask for a king? Because all of the pagan nations around them had a king. They wanted to be more like the pagan nations than they wanted to be set apart as they were supposed to be from the Lord. And why is that? Because of sin. The brokenness continues to infiltrate and continues to break and continues to destroy and continues to ruin all things. The judges come, the kings come, the kings started falling away. You have King Saul who started out with a lot of promise. King David ends up taking over and he was a man after God's own heart and he was the one that all the Israelites in the New Testament would look to him and Moses and yet he had his own failings. Adultery of Bathsheba, murder of Uriah. And then what happened? Solomon. Have you ever read the book of First and Second Kings? It's a horror story of all the kings that did not follow after the Lord. Why? It's because of sin. That's why. Well, the kings aren't following after the Lord like they should be. They're supposed to be leading the people of Israel in commands directly from the Lord, and they don't follow the Lord, so they're not doing what they're supposed to do. So I guess we'll give them prophets so prophets can speak into the life of the kings. Well, the people hated the prophets. The kings hated the prophets, so they killed the prophets. What you ultimately have at the end of the Old Testament is a nation of Israel that is judged by God and led off into exile. They eventually are able to come back, but it kind of continues, and there's this 400-year period at the end of the Old Testament leading up to the New Testament and the coming of Jesus where God is completely silent. There's an anticipation of what is going to happen with the people of God. Then you have Jesus enter the scene. So we've gone from creation. We've talked about the fall and how sin continues to infiltrate and break absolutely everything. And now we are talking about the incoming of redemption. Jesus finally comes. The long-promised Messiah, the long-promised Christ comes. 
Paul tells us in his epistles that at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And that is indeed what happened, that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, comes to earth in order to redeem his people from sin. That was his mission, first to glorify God and then to redeem his people from their sin. And this sin has become a big deal if you trace it throughout the entire Bible. We've seen the brokenness as we trace creation fall and now as we come to redemption, that there is a real and utter need for the people of God to be redeemed from their sin. And that's what Jesus does. So just a few verses if you're following along in the notes that we're just going to walk through very, very quickly and precisely about Jesus. Paul writes in Romans 6, 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the first five chapters of Romans, what Paul does is he just lays out, even more than I just did, the depravity of man because of sin. Like, if you read the first five chapters of Romans, you should feel utterly despairing. And the only hope is Christ. And what he has laid out in the previous chapters is that because of sin, Adam, as the head of all of humanity, has really filtered down, sin has filtered down from Adam, and now it infects absolutely everybody and everything. He acts as their federal head, if you will. They need a, the people of God need a new federal head. They need another person to represent them before the Lord. And so Paul lays out here in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. That death is not something that was created by God and it is not normal. It is not in his creation. When we go to funerals, the reason that we feel lost and hopeless in funerals is because it's not supposed to be that way. It's not how it's supposed to be. You think back to the original creation as we've talked about. Genesis 1 and 2, there was no death. But because of sin, death has entered the world, as Paul talks about in Romans 5. And he lays out here for us in Romans 6 that what we get because of our sin is death. The payment that we are due, the wages of sin, is death. All of us are sinners. Death reigns. But the free gift of God is eternal life. And where is this eternal life found? It's found in Jesus. It's found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is him that has paid the full penalty of sin. It is him that has promised eternal life for those that have faith and trust in him. Second verse that I want you to see. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 through 21. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here Paul lets us in on some more theology about who Christ is. Not only does he pay for our sin, as he talked about in Romans 6, but he also gives us his perfect righteousness, as he talks about in 2 Corinthians 5. That God, in his sovereignty, predestined Jesus to come and to save his people. And so he did. And how did he do it? By taking on their sin and giving them his righteousness. So that when God now looks at 
his people that are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, he sees nothing but his children that he delights in. Absolutely beautiful that Jesus imputes his righteousness to us freely while taking and paying for our sin completely. Third verse I want you to see is 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He, Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Paul speak, or Peter speaks in this verse of Jesus, the man that he walked with for three years before Jesus was betrayed and arrested and crucified, that in his crucifixion, he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we would be free from sin, so that we would no longer have to sin, that we are no longer required to sin, but that we would actually die to sin and live to righteousness. That through Christ, through his death, And through his resurrection, we now have the power within us as he's given us his Holy Spirit, not to sin, but to live according to how God has designed us to live. And that's according to his righteousness. So we see creation and fall and how Jesus redeems us. I wish we had time to go into all of the aspects of the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of redemption because they are absolutely glorious. But as we're going through this series on the church, we're just having to hit the overviews. So we have creation, fall, redemption, and finally restoration. And what you have in restoration is this picture at the end of the Bible of the book of Revelation where all of God's people, all of the redeemed are gathered around the throne of God while the Lamb, Jesus, is there. And they are in perfect harmony with him once again that the relationship indeed has been restored that the brokenness of the world because of sin has been done away with and the people of God are now with him forever in the new heavens in the new earth and finally in the new Jerusalem and the new creation the gospel is woven throughout the entirety of this of the story the entirety of the bible And as we read our Bibles slowly and as we read our Bibles carefully, we should want to pick up on Jesus and want to pick up on the gospel that is promised throughout the whole thing. But there is no gospel without having a knowledge of sin. Francis Schaeffer, a great thinker in the the mid-1900s, was once asked, if you could share the gospel with somebody, how would you do it? If If you could sit on a train for an hour and share the gospel with somebody, what would you do? And paraphrasing, but this is what Francis Schaeffer basically said. He said, for 50 minutes, I would tell them how awful of a person they are. And then for the last 10, I'd show them, show them Jesus. And that's what the Bible does for us, specifically in the Old Testament. We see shadows and we see the grace of God in the Old Testament, more than anything, it shows us our depravity and our, our fallen nature where our default position before God is sinner. In the New Testament, Jesus comes and he changes all of that. He redeems his people. So like last week, I want to just ask some analytical questions about the gospel. But first, I want to start with sin. I want to start with sin. So what is sin? What is sin? 
I encourage you this afternoon, just go to your computer, to your phone, to your laptop, your tablet, whatever, and just Google John Piper's definition of sin. And it will come up in a sermon. And it is awesome. And it is way too long to quote here. But I'm going to give you three things that sin is. First, sin as rebellion. Sin is rebellion. So in the creation mandate, when God created in Genesis 1 and 2, when sin entered the picture, the default reaction of his creation is to rebel against God. It's to rebel against his, his design, to rebel against his holiness, to rebel against his perfectness. Sin as rebellion, that is what we do. Until the Lord saves us, until the Lord regenerates, until the Lord gives us a heart of flesh, our default and natural position is to hold God as far away as possible so that we can do our own thing. Sin as rebellion. Secondly, sin as missing the mark. Sin is missing the mark. So picture archery in your head. This would have been an awesome summer if the Olympics were able to take place and they would have been having archery. Archery back in the Middle Ages, what they would do, they'd have the bullseye way out there and they'd, they'd paint it just like we see bullseyes today. And as the archers are shooting their arrows in the Middle Ages, if they missed that target, if they missed that bullseye, it was called a sin. They were missing the mark. God has set forth his mark for us. And he has done it over and over again, namely in the Old Testament where he's given us the law. And even in this new covenant age where we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves, we fail at those things time and time again. We fully miss the mark and are not able to live up to the things that God has called us as his people to live up to. Namely, to be holy as he is holy. Sin as rebellion and sin as missing the mark. And then finally, sin as bondage. Did you know that if you are not in Christ, that the only thing that you can do is sin? Paul tells us that anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. If you are not in Christ, there's nothing that you can do to please the Lord. As a matter of fact, Paul says that we are slaves to sin, that there is a bondage that we have that we cannot break, the chains that we cannot break. And we need Jesus, who is ultimately the chain breaker. He is the one that can break the chains and release us from the bondage of sin and to pursue the righteousness of God in all things. And that is exactly what these verses, especially 1 Peter 2, tell us. Sin as rebellion, sin as missing the mark, and sin as bondage. So what is the gospel? It's funny. When we're downtown and we're interviewing new members to come and to join the church, as I recommend all great churches do, we're Baptists, we believe in regenerate membership. They should be redeemed to join the church. You ask this question to people and they freeze. So tell me, just explain to me real quick, what's the gospel? There's been many times where people have been completely frozen. They, they cannot describe or tell the story of the gospel or even tell what the gospel is. So I want to pose that question to you even this morning, Christian. What is the gospel? The 
The gospel is God's story of redeeming his people through the perfect life, the sin-atoning death, and the death-overcoming resurrection of Jesus, where he is now ascended to heaven, and he is interceding for his people even now at the throne of God. That if you are in Christ by faith, if you trust in the perfect life where he imputes his perfect life to you and you impute his, your sin to him, then you obtain the things that he has obtained for you on his behalf. That you get the benefits of Christ freely. That by faith, you have eternal life. And it's because Jesus has lived the life that you could not. He's died the death because of sin that you should have died. And he's overcome that death by his resurrection. So you do not have to face an eternal death any longer. Yes, we all physically die. We're going to. But you do not have to perish. You do not have to perish. That's what the gospel is. So the gospel is a story. The gospel is also a message. When Jesus came and when John the Baptist came, they came proclaiming the kingdom of God. They came proclaiming a message. And it was this gospel that they were proclaiming. So we preach expositionally because we preach the gospel. And that's what we're going to continue to preach. The gospel is also a message that is to be received through repentance and faith. The gospel is a message that is proclaimed, and the gospel is a message that is received through repentance and faith. That if you would but turn away from your sin, have nothing to do with it any longer, and turn to Jesus, then you can have Christ himself, who is your reward. Let me close with a story, just really quickly. In December of 2009, Christopher Hitchens was interviewed by a woman named Marilyn Sewell for a piece in a journal. Sewell was a Unitarian minister and self-described liberal Christian. Won't make any comment on that. She noticed that Hitchens, in his polemics against Christianity, would often reference conservative and fundamental sources of the faith. Christopher Hitchens is probably one of the well-known atheists of our time. One of the people that is staunchly and never outside of God's grace, he will completely and utterly always reject Christianity and any religion for that matter. But when asked why he would cite conservative and fundamental sources of the Christian faith, why he did so, Sewell asked Christopher Hitchens if he made any distinction between the fundamentalists slash conservatives of the faith and the liberal faith that Sewell, who's, remember, a Unitarian minister, claimed to be. And this was his response to a liberal Christian. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifices our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. 
That's Christopher Hitchens, a famed atheist, proclaiming the gospel in an interview, even though he rejects it. Even though he rejects it. It's a beautiful description of the gospel. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and the Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're not in any real sense, any meaningful sense a Christian at all. So my question this morning, even as we talk about the gospel and what the gospel is, are you a meaningful Christian? Do you believe these things about the gospel? That Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah, and that he paid for our sins if you would but trust in him and repent of your sin. Is that the gospel that you know? Is that the gospel that you believe? Is that the gospel that you proclaim? And I pray that is the gospel that will always be proclaimed here at Haynes Creek. And we find it ultimately, this gospel in Christ alone. So allow me to pray for us as we sing of Christ alone. Father, I pray that you were glorified this morning. Save us continually, Father, with this gospel. Even though we stumble, even though we fall, even though we sin, would you remind us of the grace that you have shown us in Christ Jesus where the penalty has fully been paid, but that we still, even in this broken world, we have to battle against the presence of sin, even though that penalty has been paid. Would you redeem us? Would you renew us? Would you transform us more into the image of your beautiful son? Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.